Hello and welcome to the Dead Darlings podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney. I'm Laurie Hughes. And I'm Hannah Hutzpah. Dead Darlings is a monthly podcast about spoken word and community. Each month we'll be bringing you interviews, tips, inspiration and above all awesome poetry. We'll be telling you what's on and where you can submit your work. This month we'll be interviewing Tina Setterholm. And we'll be revealing the winner of the Things I Didn't Do in Lockdown poem competition. And we'll be giving you a sneak preview of our book review episode where we'll be chatting about The Air Year by Caroline Bird. Uh, that will be out later this month. But first, what have people been up to this month? Mm. Laurie, what have you been up to this month? Yeah. Have you made any life-changing decisions, requests? Yeah, I went into a bookshop this month. <laughs> a real-life one. That was pretty good. Um, yes, uh, no, I got engaged. That was Woo! nice. Um, <laughs> at the very start of the month, like literally the day after we recorded the podcast. So yeah. that was quite nice. <laughs> Um, and how did yeah. we contribute to your life-changing decision? How do you contribute to it? Or how did you contribute to it? Yeah, yeah, surely like you felt like... I think we wished you good luck. I fair. felt very good up, <laughs> yeah. I, I got down on one knee and said, Hannah and Rebecca think it would be a good idea if uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's what happened. Uh, no, um, I uh, proposed... And got accepted, and then, and then we had to wait for hours to be able to tell anybody because we because I proposed at like midday lunchtime on a Saturday, and everybody was busy that we wanted to ring. <laughs> um, so my parents were like, "Yeah, we'll ring you tonight." Uh, <laughs> oh, see, like... my my mom rang me in the middle of it, and I was like, "I'm literally standing." Oh, while you were being proposed to. Kind of, yeah. I'm like, ah, oh, so... Call you back! So, <laughs> Abby's just <laughs> offered me this ring. How you doing? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, uh, so we kind of waited. Uh, we, we were kind of like, great, we'll tell everyone. Oh, everyone's busy because people don't plan their lives around you getting proposed to. They <laughs> <laughs> uh, proposed to Ali Pally, which was nice. Um, so it was already very picturesque and nice. So, nice um, although although it became glorious after that, it, it was kind of like a little bit cloudy and rainy uh, <laughs> when I actually did it. But after that, it cleared up. But, but uh, yeah, um, so that's nice. That's exciting. Did you use a poem to do it? God no, no, <laughs> <laughs> no. I didn't use poetry. It didn't feel quite appropriate um, to. So yeah, just. Because uh, I knew I knew I was going to get a yes, so that made it easier. Yay! So, that does yeah. help. That does help. <laughs> so, yeah, it was all right. It was good. Um, and now, yeah, just sorting out all the beginning to think about admin for it. So that's that's mm. fun. So that was nice. I've read some books as well. <laughs> um, had a couple of... I, I finally read... Um, that Terence Hayes book that everybody's been going on about oh, for yeah, ages, yeah, American yeah. Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin, which, yeah, I thought was good. Um, it was interesting. Uh, it's quite long, but uh, it was good. It's worth a read. Um, I've also read... Um, uh, I got a recommendation in a bookshop, guys. That that hasn't happened Ooh. for absolutely Ooh. for years. Nina Mingya Powell's Magnolia was recommended to me in a bookshop. 
um, which is all about um, New Zealand stroke Chinese identity, which is interesting, which was cool. Um, And uh, Lewis Buxton, who I used to know back at university at UEA, um, has just brought out his first book, uh, Boy in Various Poses. Um, Mm. Both those last two are on Nine Arches Press, which are seemingly killing it at the moment with mm. what they're putting out so uh mm-hmm. yeah we've reviewed quite a few of their books now but um yeah all yeah. cool we did a little thing called the Vogon slam we yeah. did do that and that was excellent that was a lot of fun that was a lot of fun hannah do you want to explain the Vogon slam for sure. people who are uninitiated if anyone didn't listen to this uh, to our last episode um yeah so the Vogon poetry slam is a um a towel day offshoot tell day or geek pride day uh geek pride day is a thing that happens on the 25th of may and uh when douglas adams passed away um it was declared that it would also be towel day and that the faithful would carry their towels with them as a douglas adams hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy tribute um and in hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy the vogon aliens write the third worst poetry in the galaxy and so the vogon poetry slam is a kind of anti-slam it's a kind of geeky fun uh, it's, it, I think of it as a kind of a purging as also of like if you <laughs> spend a lot of time doing poetry listening to other mm-hmm. people's poetry certain things will start to really get on your tits and the Vogon Slam is a kind of a, a chance to lean into and make fun of uh, <laughs> some of our own worst impulses or to write something deliberately bad but it's kind of instructive like yeah it's... i think it is actually quite helpful to write bad poetry or to think about what it is that makes poetry bad uh yeah, yeah that can be quite a useful exercise and yeah it's it's been this is the 10th the, the one just gone it's it's now been running for 10 years although missed a few years um <laughs> based on how organized or not or like last year's one did not happen for example i wonder where that was uh, yeah. the world went to um, hell in a handcart i mean there was this hyperspace expressway that was yeah being in, being constructed and there was a pile-up on the hyperspace expressway as it was being <laughs> constructed where everyone was sneezing a fuck ton that's right yeah yeah yep so but yeah for the last oh yeah the 2018 one and sorry the 2019 one and the 2018 one i ran with uh you guys so yeah it's been absorbed into the the dead darlings family <laughs> resistance is useless that's um, right so yeah it's it's it was a lot of fun we we have a we that that may be its own episode i don't know how we're going to share for the for those that yeah, we haven't decided we'll, it will be available yeah. to listeners of Dead Darlings at some point in the near future. Um, some way, somehow. Yeah. It will get out. But yes. We're going to make it, it all right, was, but not right now. Yes. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we each did a terrible... That. Some pretty bad poetry from all of us, right? Yeah. 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 We, we each did, did a terrible poem. Um, and there was a slam. Um, we won't reveal who the winner was, I suppose. Um, but we also had a feature set from the uh, reigning slam champion, who is a friend of the show, uh, Alexander Woody Woodward, um, mm-hmm. who is also an excellent poet and therefore can do a very good 20 minutes, as well as <laughs> showing, yes, if the winning the winning piece from previous... Yeah, is an excellent poet, therefore capable of producing some fucking terrible poetry. Exactly. Should he wish to. Yeah. <laughs> that's right yeah yeah 
Yeah, we had a lot of fun. Yeah. It was way more international than normal. Some of our slammers were up at 2 a.m. which I to take yeah. part, which I think maybe added to their performance. <laughs> rather than yeah, the yeah, you've got to admire that at that point. Like, <laughs> yeah, whatever that brings, it, it, it is brilliant. Major it, sleepy energy. Yeah, yeah, it is bowl of petunia energy, really. And yeah, and then actually, so we're doing this in a slightly different order to normal. Uh, we've already recorded our interview, and it is a fucking good interview. Actually, Are we doing reflections yeah. on the interview now? Yeah, absolutely. I thought <laughs> it was a really good interview. Tina said at home is, is who I want to be when I grow up. It like... actually encapsulated a lot of our, uh, a lot of our passions yeah. in one person. So I'm really excited for people to hear. I don't, and I, I always feel it's a bit twatty when people are like, oh, I'm so excited to hear the interview that I've done this month. But genuinely, she's like full of amazing tips and advice on editing, on writing poetry. And yeah, and I'm actually quite sad that because we were, you know, obviously we do these interviews with uh, kind of video calls and she was so emotive. I'm quite sad that our listeners won't get to see all of that. But it was a fantastic interview, so I'm really interested to share it. Anyway, should we do an interview? Yeah. Let's do an interview. Tina Sederholm is an award-winning poet, writer and raconteur who has journeyed along that little-known career path from international event writer to performance poet. No one saw this coming, least of all her. From a concerned little girl doing her best to follow the rules and her dream to win badminton horse trials, she has turned into an acerbic, big-hearted, sweary, insatiably curious woman who uses poetry to pry open paradoxes such as the positives of failure, the richness in debt and the quixotic nature of love. A multiple slam winner, she has performed at festivals and gigs all over the country for the last 15 years, including the Royal Albert Hall and the Edinburgh Fringe, where her four solo shows have been awarded four and five star reviews. She has published two poetry pamphlets and her second collection, This Is Not Therapy, is due out from Burning Eye Books in July. So, Tina, thank you very much for joining us. Um, would you be happy to kick us off with a poem? I certainly would. Um, this is one from the new collection and it's in honour of the fact that at the time of recording, I think you guys have just run the Vogue on Poetry Slam. We did, yeah. Yeah, so... Because uh, I haven't performed this poem in public that much, because who has performed new stuff? And, uh, and it, it does reference Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy quite a lot. So for the, anyone listening who is not familiar with Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I hope this will actually make you want to go and read it. Read Hitchhiker's. The impulse came urgently, unexpected, like a surprised sperm whale suspended above an alien planet or a bowl of petunias. Douglas would have chuckled at the irony of divine inspiration, or God, if you wish, reminding me to reread a book that disproves God, or rather replaced it with a computer called Deep Thought, which, if you think about it, is another metaphor for the metaphor called God. I applaud those people who type G-D. They are at least trying to grasp the ungraspable. That vaporous notion that there is something bigger than these mere bodies. Although G-D falls sadly short. Reading a book about a book emblazoned with the words don't panic on the cover is the perfect antidote to a pandemic. A book that points out time and again that nothing is what we assume. 
that embracing the improbable can take you anywhere, whereas an answer is kind of the end of the road. So call this unnameable whatever you want. Energy, world, love, grace, kindness, call it Nigel. I'm not saying you have to believe in Nigel. I don't want to either, especially the way I was taught. Yet I can't help staring into space more often than I should, overwhelmed by what is common, everyday and powerful about all of us. Nice. (laughs) Thank you so much. Who knew Nigel would come up so soon in this interview? (laughs) (laughs) He just has a way of putting his nose in, you know. Incidentally, I I have a neighbour two doors down called Nigel, and he's the Mr. Fix-It of our village. So I was just going to sort of do a shout out to him. Yay! You're on it. Cool. Brilliant. Um, So how did you get into poetry in the first place? Oh, well, I've been <laughs> I've been thinking about this a lot um, because I obviously think about myself an awful <laughs> lot uh, because I used to <laughs> I used to always answer that question by saying I really only got into poetry in my 30s. You know, I'm a very late arrival, but that's not exactly true. Uh, I think I actually spent the first 30 years of my life running away from poetry <laughs> and it kept sort of creeping up on me because when I when I sort of think back, um, I did love writing poetry at school and uh, and then I loved writing a lot of teenage angsty mm-hmm. poetry yep. uh, and yet you know I, and I could say oh but my teachers turned me off by teaching me John Donne and Alexander Pope and that's not true because I actually I loved reading The, the Rape of the Lock and, um, and, and I was fascinated with John Donne but the thing is that poetry just wasn't mm. cool it's just not cool <laughs> And I think the only problem. thing that got yeah. me writing poetry. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, we try and make it cool, and just for a moment, somebody falls for that uh-huh. gag, um, and then they're like, "No, no, no, no!" It was the new rock and roll for five uh-huh. minutes, but pff, back of the line, people <laughs> get back with contemporary dance. Yeah, Murray Lockman Young gets, gets a TV show. Uh, George the Poet gets yeah. a podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They, it's like we've done poetry now for uh-huh. a decade. Anyway, so. But what I recently realised was the thing that gave me permission to write my own poetry in my sort of late teens was Rick Mayer. Yes. <laughs> young oh, ones. man. Because, yeah, because, <laughs> um, and, and he was because when he started that character before it became part of the young ones, he often did lots of uh, bits of poetry. Well, I mean, I'm calling it poetry. He managed to rhyme things like theatre with theatre. <laughs> Yes, take your spirit to the theatre. Oh, my goodness. And um, I think it it was that level of fun. Like, he was really serious. The character was so serious. And and I I identified with Rick in the young one so much because, you know, I just wanted to be cool, but I was just too middle class and rule abiding. So, you know, that was the sort of way it snuck out. So uh, this is a very long answer to your first question. Anyway, so then, but but I was, as I point out in my bio, I had, had this first career, well, it's still going on in some ways, uh, as an equestrian, and that uh, required a lot of single-minded mm. focus. Mm. So a lot of things that I really liked doing just went out the window. And it wasn't until until I stopped, uh, stopped competing at a very high level and I, I kind of did my gap year at 30. Yeah. <laughs> That's when I tramped off to Australia. And, uh, and, um, 
and I started I started writing and but I was going to write stories and novels because that's just way cooler mm-hmm. right? yeah and um then somebody gave me a a tape of poetry of this guy called David White and it completely blew me away yeah he's a he's an a, a British poet well he's English Irish but he lives in America uh, and he does extraordinary work in the corporate world okay. so he basically works in putting the heart back into corporate America mm. which, you know, as you do it's quite a yeah. big deal <laughs> yeah, like, um, but somebody gave me a tape and just said oh I think you'd really like this apropos of I don't know what <laughs> But I sat, I sat in a park in Sydney listening to this tape of poetry with the tears streaming down my face. And I was like, oh, that's, that's weird. I mean, I, I only understood about 30% of mm-hmm. it, which in retrospect is good going. <laughs> because, you know, poetry, when you haven't been around yeah. a lot. Um, but there was something, like it went straight into the core mm. of me. And then I just started, you know, like, dog hell, write poems yeah. again. <laughs> That that was it. That was it. And then I ended up going, um, I joined a poetry group in Oxford called Backroom Poets, who were page poets. And that was great because that really taught me to be, uh, have quite a lot of discernment about what I was writing. It really taught, started the process of me learning how to edit mm. and rewrite stuff because um, they were all really nice, but they were also, you know, it was a, it was a feedback yeah. group. Mm like this works I don't get this and so I learned that quite early on but the readings I went to I just found it quite stayed Mm -hmm. like it wasn't like David White if you ever listen to him because he has thousands of recordings and he conjures up this incredible atmosphere and he often repeats lines or repeats verses um he has a sort of belief that you know if you hear a good line it's almost an abuse to go on to the next good line because the your brain hasn't had time to process <laughs> okay. it. And then, so then I was going to the like traditional poetry readings where people are just reading from a page. I'm like, what happened? Where, hang on, no, I got something. It wasn't satisfying. And then I ended up at a slam. And I was like, oh! <laughs> that's the stuff, oh, okay. okay. That's what, that's what's ca- really calling uh-huh. me. Uh, that performance aspect together with the poetry and the accessibility of the poetry like Mm. you you know for me a good slam piece you really get something from the first take Mm -hmm. and then that draws you in maybe to listen again and again and And then you keep no no there's something developing yeah 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 yeah. and I that that and and also having loved being on stage when I was at school and having not done any of it it was a perfect kind of Mm. meeting point of my work I realized quite quickly that although I love writing stories I really love being on stage and so the writing I did most easily was the one where it was then going to become a performance so you sort of had the very good performance of David White then you got the best hopefully like the best of best of all worlds I'm seeing maybe because mm. then you get like this is how to actually structure it, analyze it, and then you get the and here's where it's <laughs> it slaps. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's really interesting that you're talking there about kind of seeing yourself very much as a performer as well as a writer. How do you find that relationship between page and stage? Do you kind of do you find it a difficult one to mm. navigate, or does it come very naturally to you? Do you think? Mm, I I'd, I'd like to say it comes actually quite. Is naturally the right word. I'm not sure about that. Um, it's 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 where my fascination, my curiosity, really lies. Because I want my poems to work on the page too. 
as well as performed pieces and so my um as you pointed out at the beginning having having been a member of backroom poets i mean it was nearly 15 years that i would go you know two thursdays a month we'd go you bring a poem you get the you know pull it apart um and so um, one of the reviews from my my first collection was like oh she's kind of she's like a harlequin like some of these are really paid are page poems and some of them are definitely performance pieces mm. but part of my um challenge was how can i get those performance pieces to bounce off the page yeah, yeah as if I was performing them. Because you can get away with things on stage. You can you can get away with a few sloppy mm-hmm. lines if you've got good energy yeah. behind it, you know, all that kind of stuff. And um and uh so yeah, that that's a constant kind of back and forth. But I feel like the two processes actually really serve each other in that learning the pieces to go on stage is a really good editing tool. Because if mm. I keep forgetting a poem in the same place okay or I miss out a lot. I mean, I've gone back to stuff I've written and I've performed that poem like, you know, 70 times and I've gone back and I was like, I didn't know that line was in it. And I've learned, you know, I've learned it without the line. Thank God. It obviously wasn't meant to be there. And I think that's, um, I think Laurie and I, we were on this um, Burning Eye marketing meeting, weren't we, about six months ago. And somebody, one of the other first time authors asked, what's, What's, a, what's like your one regret about your collection? And without a doubt, all the really experienced poets said, I wish I'd edited mm. more because I'll be performing that piece a year later and, and I'm like, oh God, is that like, you know, no, yeah, no, no, yeah. no, no, no. So, so yeah, so I, I feel like they can really, and that I've really missed that open mic um, or, you know, going to do sets and putting a couple of new pieces in to try them out against an audience. Because mm. again, the audience response often tells me, tells me does this yeah. work or not mm. um, and of course you know audiences are all different you know sometimes you do a poem and you're like there's a good gag mm. there nobody laughs like, oh it's <laughs> yeah. a long way to the end of this poem if you're not gonna laugh yeah. there mate. Least, yeah it definitely definitely <laughs> had that <laughs> yeah. yeah but but also response isn't just about laughter it's about the quality of the mm. silence you get back sometimes mm. isn't it, it is, you know yeah. you, you know when you get that when I first started performing, I was really scared when people were quiet. It's like, oh, you know, I've got to do something like yeah. fling my knickers in the air or something. It's like, no, no, listen. Because if they're really quiet, that's great. Mm-hmm. That's people paying attention. Mm-hmm. It's when you get the shuffle, shuffle. It's like, okay, now I've lost yeah. them. I've got to do, that's when I've got to do something to get them back. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I see the two things mm-hmm. can, can really serve each other. I also think, like, um, going back to Tina's stuff about the back, back was it back room poets? Uh, yeah. yeah, I was going to say backdoor poets, but that sounds terrible. That's not what I meant. Uh, backroom poets. I mean, sometimes. <laughs> um, with the back back room, like, so I had a critique group that I'd go to every month um, before the pandemic, and that's completely fallen away with it. I think I've had some, mm. done some workshops online where it's been more like generating new work. Like Rebecca and I did the mm. Apples and Snakes Red Sky sessions. There's been a um, mm. Words Down went online, which is helpful, but it's been helpful in a let's make some new work way. But that critique kind of let's spend time pulling things apart and over mm. a drink and, and, and re-jigging mm. your work. I found it very difficult to find spaces for that in the pandemic. Mm. Yeah. Critique. I agree. I 
Yeah, I agree. And that's one of the reasons why. Um, so I've edited other people's work, not just poetry, but mainly nonfiction, but some fiction. I love editing fiction, too. I mean, I'm just, I'm just like, yeah, bring it. <laughs> Come on, let's do let's, Well, how can we make this really good? Uh-huh. Um, so but I've started doing editing workshops online and it, it took me a while to figure out how do I get that? How do I give people the tools, but also the space? Mm. Um, because I do feel you have to build up a certain amount of trust. Because when you first show people a poem, which you know is mm, 94% there or, you know, not quite working in a place, you've got to really trust that those people are not, are going to give you honest and pragmatic critique, but aren't going to be nasty to your little baby that's just Mm. come out and is still finding its feet. That's a real... And and, and building that up on Zoom with a group of people that you haven't already worked with Mm. is really hard because nobody in the world operates on the same rules as you do. You know, this is why we're continually upset with people because they don't know (laughs) your manual on how they should behave. Uh, But when it comes to something that's as vulnerable as a piece of art that isn't quite ready, that's a really... Mm, that's a really kind of precious thing but so it did take me I, I kept having this idea because I, I again I see millions of work and they're brilliant I love generating new work yeah bring it on but shaping yeah. it is a whole nother art and craft yeah. and uh and I, I finally kind of drilled it down to sort of three tools I thought right I can teach people this they can have an experience of how it's improved the poem then they're going to have to go out and do it themselves. I'm, I'm hoping I can develop this into like a six or eight week course where we can build that trust to work people's, you know, work people's work. Because I learned so much from in, in that group. I mean, I've learned a lot from uh, many poets, but that group in particular, because they were mostly older page poets, but they would just ask really we had we had this respect within us which was we'd say something like you know that line just doesn't really work for me uh or this is the response I'm getting and but as a writer I learned that you know it it's not you don't take everybody's opinion you kind Mm. of take what they say and if three or four people start agreeing on the same point and there's probably something there you need to sort out but if there's one kind of random one if once you've checked in with yourself and gone oh was that true for me yeah and if it's no, then it's no, yeah. Yeah. you know. Mm. Um, but you have to have reached a certain level of security in yourself and um, and discernment to go, yeah, I'm not just going to do what that person told me. I'm going to try it out. If it doesn't work, it's yeah. okay, I can let go of it. Big yeah. time. And I personally, yeah, I, I think group feedback is so important because if one person goes, I didn't know what the stone was about, and everyone else goes, no, the stone's the best bit, then you've got an answer. But if you're just seeing people one by one. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, like, mm-hmm. yeah, it took me, yeah, you need a certain level of confidence to be able to take that, right? Like, I studied yeah. writing at uni, and I wanted to get good grades. <laughs> so if my yeah. tutor is the one person <laughs> that doesn't get what the stone is about, I'm writing a piece of shit to try and get an A. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. What was the stone about? Uh, no, I wasn't. I was trying to write a funny ghost story for a uh, for my uh, final dissertation, and my my tutor didn't have a sense of humour. So, but but learning how to present critique in that it doesn't attack the person is also really good for yourself because we all look at our work. Yeah. <laughs> I look at my work and sometimes like that is a pile yeah. of shit. How do I even <coughs> dare get on stage? You know, I have I have that voice. Everyone has mm. that voice, and learning 
the voice of critique, which is um, not kind as in, oh, no, it's really good, mm. which is no use but for kind a poem, to the whatsoever. Poem. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, but exactly that, like, oh, is this what you're trying to say? And when, when you f- hear that piece of feedback, it's like, sometimes it can be quite cutting because you're like, oh, God, somebody's seen where I boomed yeah. up. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it has that kind of, um, like, that knife edge of truth. And you're like, <coughs> oh, yeah, yeah, okay, brilliant. It's hard, isn't it? Um, when I, mm. I did a very brief stint as a copywriter um, a few years ago, um, so all it's corporate, horrible. I know, <laughs> and uh, it was brief because I got fired. Um, and part of the reason I got fired was because um, I just wasn't very good at it. And, well, it was the reason I got fired. Anyway, um, but the feedback that I got, I now realise in hindsight, I got a piece of feedback on one of the of one of the pieces that said, and this is a quote, no, just no. And I go, How? it's no wonder it didn't work out. Like, they, they couldn't get feedback. Because yes. how was I ever meant to improve if yeah. like, that's the kind of feedback you get? Like and, and so in hindsight, I'm like, oh, good. I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> I didn't last in that job because it just would have been a nightmare working with people who don't know how to yeah, give feedback. Have, yeah, it would have destroyed your confidence. But if you if you um, learn how to give feedback, you can also give feedback to yeah. yourself, which is kinder. Aww. I'm not sure I ever got to the end of that sentence. That was my point when I started rambling before. <laughs> you, um, you know, you learn to be more objective towards your own work as well. Um, yeah. Mm. You mentioned you had three rules. Oh, I, yeah, for my workshops, I've honed it down to three sort of tools. Let's see if I can do them short. Yeah. I think the, fir- the very first thing is a really simple one, which is as soon as you've written a first draft, stick it in a drawer for at least 24 hours, yeah. if not yeah. a week, um, so that you can get some distance from it. And... I'm also a great believer in writing a really crappy first draft. <laughs> and very often they're not crappy. You know, when I say crappy, very often they're not. They're lovely sparks, and but there can be some really bad things. And I, I read this fantastic quote from, oh, I'm not going to be able to say his name, Schwarzwelder, Zelda. He wrote, anyway, he wrote 59 episodes of The Simpsons. Okay. He's a comedy writer. John Schwarzwelder? And he says something up. Is that his name? Yes, yeah. that's it. I think I've watched I'm a lot of sure. Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> but he said that he wrote the first script like as bad as it would literally be Homer, I don't want you to do that. Okay, I won't. It was that level and really crappy jokes. And it's like some crappy elf came along, wrote my script, tipped his crappy hat and left. And then I get up the next morning and, I've, and now the fun begins mm. because I've got something to work with, however bad. And so I, I'm, I'm a, I've always been a believer in get something down. Um, I'm always amazed in workshops, actually, when I hear other people's first drafts. I'm like, surely not. How the bloody hell did you come up with that in 10 minutes? No, mine's all over the place. Um, uh, and so, so my first rule is, first draft, brilliant. You've done the hard bit. Stick it in a door. Do not look mm. at it. And then when you do take it out, um, you're going to read through it uh, with, a, with a colour pen of your choice. Okay. <laughs> Oh, it's colour is important. And go through and read it. And any little kind of glitch or... Um, I, I like to still be using um, sort of the body sensation because it's easy to really get in your head when you start rewriting and mm. editing. 
And so uh, I liked I liked that kind of fresh read through. I'm like, huh? Just cross it. Don't try and fix it then. Just put a little cross by it. Like something was off here. First reading it silently on the page, but then reading it out loud. Mm. And I would say if you do nothing else, if you hate editing and rewriting and it scares the pants out of you, at least read your poem out loud to yourself because you will hear things that you yeah. do not see. Um, especially things like repeated words. Yeah. I mean, I just, the poem I did at the beginning, I mean, I must have been through that poem at least 200 times. I mean, it feels like even more than 200 times um, when I've been through the editing process. And yet I had used the phrase no, at least and notion twice in two verses. Was, How did I miss that? <laughs> and it's because I haven't performed it live. Um so reading out loud. And so I encourage people to read out loud and then make a little mark. And if you feel things like your stomach going <coughs> or your mouth feels full of marbles, that's a really good sign that the rhythm is mm, off yeah, or there's yeah. just too many words in the damn it's sentence. Yeah. yeah. So that's great. So once you know that, once you're like, oh, that works and that doesn't. I separate the process into two things, which is um, uh, rewriting and editing so not doing the two things together so I see rewriting as the spots where you went off a bit like you weren't present when you were writing or it just uh, it was a good idea mine tends to start with a really good idea I go somewhere and then I get distracted <laughs> you can always see the point okay from that point I need to rewrite this poem or that patch so then I'll go and do a free write on that part mm. But I won't let myself, if the poem is at that stage, I won't let myself start nitpicking on commas and line breaks and stuff like that. Because I found if you mix those two bits, the rewriting and the editing, that's how you muller a poem. You take the, you take the life out mm. of it because you've kind of squeezed it before it fully expanded. <laughs> Very odd metaphor <laughs> I just came up with. Um, but yeah, that's, that's my kind of... Um, I've done it. I'm just telling you now, just don't fucking do it. Do not mix those two processes up. If you're rewriting, rewrite. If you're editing, edit. So that, that's what I do if I feel... A, um, so if I, when I've gone through and marked it, this is three very <laughs> interlinking yeah. rules. I haven't... You see, I haven't got it down to the three ways to change your poetry <laughs> life. Three, three simple tricks. <laughs> three simple tricks. Number one, leave it in a drawer. The poetry fairies will come and fix it for you. Uh, number two, <laughs> uh, go through and decide what's underwritten, what's overwritten. So the underwriting is always fixed with rewriting. Overwriting is fixed by removing explanation. So this is my third thing, is that I will go through a poem with a highlighter. This is very important. And um, it's a highlighter. So it has to be, has to be printed out. Lots of stationery. <laughs> yes, always makes things better. Um, but I highlight every bit of explanation. So mm. anything that doesn't relate to one of the senses, okay. highlighter. It's not crossed out because you need a bit of explanation. Or you, you can hear in mind, there are lines which are hopefully earned abstracts, if you like. But you've got to see 
so many people don't have faith in their images. They'll do an image and then there's a line of explanation because mm. it's like you're writing an essay for school, not a bloody poem. Yeah. And it's like, no, you need that space between the images. And this, this exercise can really freak people out to start off with. I'm like, it's okay, don't panic. The poem hasn't gone. You've just highlighted it, mm. the bits that you don't want in it for a moment. Then read that poem out loud, just cutting from image to image to image. Mm. Oh, my God. Without your narrator so often. popping up oh. going, hello. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. And, you know, you poor people who don't understand the point I'm trying to make here, <laughs> uh, uh, which we all want mm. to do. We all want to be loved and understood. You know? <laughs> so we're trying to explain I think ourselves. there are some poets Whereas, we all know who don't want to be understood because they think it's yeah. clever. Right? <laughs> but actually, good yes. poets want to be understood. <laughs> yeah, and you want yes. to think your audience is smart, but you're also afraid that they might not understand you at the same time. Like, it's yeah. a thing, isn't it? I think of it as scaffolding, it is, it that is. stuff. Like, that's how I think of it yes. in my my brain like I remember there's one poem that's in my collection where like I shared it with people and they were like I can't understand the physical movement of what is happened of what's physically where so then you have to go back in and like add little bits to scaffold it to kind of go okay this yeah. is this is here and that's there so you can picture it in your head um yeah and it's not very eloquent and, and beautiful but it is necessary because otherwise the poem doesn't work it- <laughs> Absolutely, totally necessary. And I, I agree that that point where there are some people who think the more obtuse you are, the better po- the poem is. Okay, if that turns you on, <laughs> fucking brilliant. Go and do it. Doesn't turn me on that much. Um, but um, going back to the image thing, what I think is really important about that is it leaves space for your audience mm. to join in and have their own visceral response. Because if you are... Um, flagging up the response you think they should have, mm. you, this is now not a conversation between you and the audience yeah. or reader. And a good poem invites somebody, allows a little space for them to have their... Yeah. Or, ooh. Yeah. Um, and if you tell them what to think, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and then it just becomes, then it just becomes hectoring people. Yeah. You can go to the House of Commons to be hectored <laughs> with bollocks. A lot of your work, one way or the other, like from different angles, sort of approaches the theme of failure or like expectations not matching mm. up to things. Like you got a whole piece about yeah. your intended career as a show jumper or one equestrian. Rebecca would have asked that question perfectly <laughs> it does involve show jumping um, if that helps. or like you've got a whole piece about money and how people weigh up sort of self-worth and debt and what you could afford how what fascinates you about that kind of topic of I guess disappointment but you approach it in a very warm and friendly and kind of humane way <laughs> yeah what's I mean, it's completely um, self-absorbed. You know, like, I want to know. <laughs> I needed to come to terms with my own failure because I, I grew up in a very um, competitive environment because my dad was a trainer to four different Olympic teams, Team. among many other things. One of the most famous people, at, or he was. I mean, he's still alive, but, you know, hasn't. Uh, he's in a care home, so not giving too many lessons at the moment. Um, but... Uh, and so, uh, and we had this big training centre where people would come to train to be, you know, try and reach the top in, in that mm. sport. So from a very small child, I just assumed everybody oh, wow. yeah. was trying to do that. 
you know and that was because that's what everyone was thinking about every you know because everyone stayed with we had like 28 resident students and some of them were sort of 18 or 19 but some of them were um olympic level riders mm. And that's people I hung out with all the oh, time. Wow. So my, oh, wow. my standards were, were set pretty high. You know, for, for what I thought, for what I thought constituted success mm. and by extension happiness. Yeah. Mm. So when, and I did, I did very well as a rider. I'm not going to, um, you know, but I didn't quite reach where I wanted to. Mm. And um, pretty close, but not quite. And, so I, uh, in basically the end of my 30s, I, I stopped riding, uh, competing at a really high level. Mm. I had quite a few injuries and I knew I wasn't, I couldn't ride as well as I wanted to. It really hurts. Mm. And that was mm. so heartbreaking because I loved horses. I loved the life. And, and, it, and I had slightly, in my view, I'd failed. Mm. Um, my body appeared to have let me down. And um, I also, at that time, my parents also decided to sell the training centre and sort of semi-retire. And I had no, my identity Ooh. just left. Oh, yeah. Because who was I if I wasn't Tina Sederholm, horse rider, you know, daughter of Lars Sederholm. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it makes me cringe now. I introduced myself that wow. way. Wow, okay. I did, you know, I, because we were a family business. Yeah, we were yeah, supposed yeah. to work together, yeah. you know. So... It was an incredible place to grow up, but it was also very pressured because we were on show right from being small children. Like, you couldn't mess up. Mm. You had to be a good example to all the pupils. Mm. So, anyway, I'm probably overpainting this, but um, there came that time, and that was around the time I got given that tape of poetry, where I was really trying to decide, who yeah. am I if I am not this successful person? Mm. Um, and I, I didn't, I think it took me probably at least another 10 years to figure out like, oh, your self-worth does not need to be tied up with how s- successful you are and how much you achieve in a day. Um, and I still, you know, and, and now I look out in the world more and I see, oh, this is happening all over the place. I mean, mine was kind of like an exaggerated version, but this is not unusual. We're, we're selling people mm. this, this mm. ideal all the mm. time. Um, and, uh, and uh, so, yeah, so I basically started investigating like, oh, what does failure mean? What does, because I feel like a failure. Um, uh, am I? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Are other people feeling like yeah, Tina, you're not a failure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I found out quite a few people were feeling yeah. like that. And then I started, what actually got me, because I've got this poem that starts, um, failure, you make me interesting. <laughs> Give me stories to tell at parties where others market themselves as heroes. <laughs> and and, um, and that was, a, it was actually, I did it on Napo Rimo. It was a hymn of praise yeah. you were supposed to mm. write to somebody or something. Mm. And what really gave me freedom in the poetry world to fail was doing the anti-slap. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Yeah, because um, it was such a bizarre experience. Because at that point, I was, you know, I was writing a lot. I had a lot more freedom around myself, but it was still, you know, I wanted to go on and impress people and be loved again. To explain what the anti-slam <laughs> is for people, for listeners who oh, don't yeah, know. I should do. <laughs> Okay, so the anti-slam was um, created by Paula Varjak and, and then worked together with Dan Simpson in, this country, in, in Berlin and then she brought it over here. And basically the idea is that the worst poem wins. 
Um, so you're trying to do your worst piece of work. But the clever thing about the anti-slam is, is not that you're just write a bad poem because we can all manage that. <laughs> Plenty of people that's can manage to write a bad poem. Yeah. That, that's <laughs> what the Bogon <laughs> Slam does. We just want people's bad poems, yeah. but the anti-slam is a bit different. Yeah. It's, like... it's a little bit different in that, well, this is how I interpreted yeah. it. The ones that worked and the ones that didn't. Because, of course, I went to analysing <laughs> how do you do yeah. this well. How can I win the answer? How can I win? I want to be the best at failing. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I'm so competitive. Of course I wanted to win it. And I I realised the people who really got it were the people who went into the sort of shadow part of their personality, you know, the parts that they want to hide from everyone. And then they sent that up as much as they could and had a lot of fun with it. So going on stage, sending up this part of me that I try to hide, you know, the vulnerable... Uh, well, actually, vulnerable and arrogant, which is a pretty <laughs> potent mixture when you put it together. Um, None of this is relatable content, Tina. I have no idea no, what you're talking ha- about. I can just see Hannah <laughs> shaking her head on the webcam like, I'm not going to talk about the, <laughs> what, your teenage goth anti-slam. Oh, yes, I do. Anyway, but going on, doing that, and then getting a cheer for being really appalling... Yeah. <laughs> Like that blue, that critical part of, I mean, I remember sitting down after the first time I did it and I was like, where, where, what, 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 who? I'm never going to be the same again. It's kind of wonderful, isn't it? It's, yes. It's, it's healing in a way. <laughs> yeah. It also kind of loops it, it you back to really Rick Mail, actually, and those yeah. poems that he did, which were sort of just yes. a send up of that poetry guy. They're not, uh, they're yeah. not actually good <laughs> and that's part of the point yeah. but he just sort of revels yeah. in how bad <laughs> it can be and po face i know yeah. Yeah. yeah i know yeah and then when the audience laughs at them he tells them to shut, shut up, up. <laughs> you know <laughs> shut up <laughs> <laughs> he tries to flick on the bees but it's like yeah. the victory sign because he gets it the wrong yeah. way around not, you'd understand that line but yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. do you want to come exactly. down here and do a poem so, <laughs> exactly yeah. yes. oh my god <laughs> yeah so so yeah um so i'm getting back to your thing on failure yeah. but i i also i heard this i'm not going to pretend that i invented this but it was a really kind of life-changing thing to mm. hear was uh i'm really keen on this guy called rob bell who used to be a a pastor yeah. and he uh american yeah. you know vicar they call them pastors don't they and but really like didn't get on with the system but he's fascinated with the bible so he reinterprets bible stories in with a historical context so you start to go oh that's why that's really important that bit of that story anyway he posed this question which is like what are the five most significant things that have happened to you in your life and and just stopping and thinking and then he says i bet none of them were successes mm. all of them were d- disaster like divorce death of a loved one mm. like those are the really significant life-changing events and where we are you know on this and we <laughs> hey you guys are all in my tribe now <laughs> where we all want to march towards this you know holy grail of success but actually what makes you a more compassionate mm. more well-rounded person is how do you find the resilience to deal with losing someone yeah. unexpectedly or the job that you always wanted. How do you how do you do that? And it's like, oh my goodness. Okay. So failure's actually got this really important thing part to play in our life. It's not all about that, yeah. you know, 
I'm doing I'm doing a sign that nobody <laughs> will be able to see on the podcast. That's the word. Yes, I was looking for the word. Thank you. <laughs> Upward trajectory. You know, we're, we're expecting that's our lives, and it's just not. It's just not. Well, like, if it's only um, ever upward trajectory, you have lucked out and you've never had to look at alternatives. Like, the, one of the first things you've tried yeah. has turned out to be good. And that's not mm. really the same as kind of finding your feet in the ways that... Yeah. Yeah, yeah I used to yeah. find that, in, um, particularly in my old job, I used to do a, a profile every week of, of a different person. And it was... He was in the FE sector, so like colleges, sixth forms, apprenticeships. And of course, no one says, mm. I want to be the manager of a large FE college or a principal of FE college when they're a kid. Like, no. so usually, and, and, and very often, it's a very precocious child. Somebody. Yeah, right? Um, but the most boring people to interview were the people who just like, yeah, I got good grades and then I did the thing I wanted to do and now I'm here. And you That's were like, it. cool. Yeah. Well, I have another hour yeah. to talk to you and a thousand words to fill. Could you come up with something else to say for yourself? Yeah. Whereas invariably the people... Also yeah. also lying. Yeah. Also yeah, lying. Yes, quite possibly. Quite, because yeah. I don't know who hasn't had, you know, yeah. things happen. And and it is, yeah, how do we... And, and you know, denial can be really useful sometimes. Let's not, let's, let's not undersell the value of, of being able to go, la, 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 yeah. la, la, this isn't happening. Um, but, yeah. yeah, that would be my... Yeah. How do audiences respond to that? Because obviously, like, slam and, and performance poetry can be quite bombastic. It can be quite kind of, you know, part of it is about kind of saying, come with me, I know what I'm doing here, I'm going to do some poetry and you're going to listen to it and enjoy it. How do audiences respond to this idea of failure? Um, actually, I, I find... So, I have... God, I'm, I said I, I'm referencing my Kufra. <laughs> I'll be careful with that. <laughs> I, uh, no, I should see a doctor. Um, I should really, yeah. Uh, uh, but um, uh, I, one of my kind of calling card pieces is called Prediction, so you don't give away the gag. But anyway, the gag of the first end of the first verse is, I'm sorry, you've given birth to a poet. And then the rest of the poem is all about the reasons you really shouldn't let your kids be poets. <laughs> um, and um, I, m- even in audiences where there are no poets, that sense of, oh, God, yeah, I have not lived up to my parents' expectations um, rings so true mm. that people come up and go, I can't believe you wrote that poem. You know, you wrote that poem. It's, you're talking mm. about me. And so I I think w- where I can get it to work is that I send myself up. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's me who's going, oh, God, I made this mess. And then I'm allowing the audience to go, yeah, I did too. Mm. Um, and so often I feel like relief from the audience you know and and also being allowed to laugh at this didn't go right i haven't got it do you know i haven't got it all figured out you haven't got it all figured out and you just told everyone yes yeah. <laughs> isn't that amazing like now we've got something to do with our lives <laughs> can figure out how to make this work but we live in a culture which is constantly getting us to try and show our best side as our only side and it's so not true we've got all these other bits swirling around you know the the parts of us that haven't grown up Mm -hmm. yet um are still stuck you know crying behind the bike sheds because somebody was mean to us you know these are kind of very real parts of our psyche that that deserve to be on the journey too Mm. not not cut out but you have to be so you have to be brave to obviously 
very brave to do that on social mm. media. I mean, part... you know, brave to do anything on social media, but anyway. The parts that, are, that aren't always like obvious as well. So me and Hannah mm. went to go and see your Fringe show till death was part. Whenever that was now, pre-pandemic, when was that? 20... 2016. 2016, okay. Wow. So we went to go and see that and sat in the audience. And um, I personally have always really struggled with understanding money. Like, just it's been... Mm. And people start talking to me about money and I just completely uh, zone out. I, it, it's, uh, I, I feel about it the way that people talk about uh like dyslexia when people start talking to me about about money i freak out my brain can't compute what people are saying and i just feel like i can't even begin to touch this so when you did that show which is all about money which is a weird thing to choose to do a fringe show about but in the best possible way and talking about about that feel that feeling of not understanding or that feeling of of feeling kind of shut out from a world um mm. And the way that you drew uh, certainly me into that show by kind of leaning into the feeling of of not understanding. It's not quite failure, but it's like kind of not quite getting it. It just, mm. uh, when I left, uh, I, I think about that show all the time. I think about that show all the time oh, wow. because it, it changed how I think about money and think about economies and things and uh, it, that's a very strange thing to have come away from a spoken word show feeling <laughs> but genuinely it, it, it's changed how I feel about things and that, and so it obviously works <laughs> this approach oh wow that's that's um that's quite <laughs> it really is it really is uh you know it was born out of my own frustrations of um Again, I come from quite a wealthy background and I'm definitely the person in my family who they're like, oh, God, Tina hasn't got any money again. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and there was a stage in my life where it was really good at making money, but it was an incredibly painful mm. process. So it was and I realized how many of us because money is so tied into survival, mm -hmm. you know, it, so it's tied into that um you know the prime um the primal brain yeah. that that uh fight or flight mechanism mm. and so now when you know people are under so much pressure and i felt that absolutely paralyzed when i don't have enough when i think i don't have enough yeah. money because sometimes i do and sometimes i don't sometimes it's just you know future fear mm. um and so that's why i just wanted to lean into it and go what what is that why because i could feel it running my life yeah. mm. I really because I'm very privileged person um, and I do know that if I got in real shit there are people who can help me out sure. um, you know I would be seriously embarrassed because I feel I should be able to support myself but you know if it really came to it there were people who would no bones about it not everybody's in that position but even then I feel that power paralyzing fear yeah. um it stops you being creative it stops you functioning it's everything mm. and so that's why i wanted to kind of dig it around stress that just covers it made me feel many. physically sick oh my God. Like, you know yeah 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 but i realized because it's very tied into our idea of survival that's why it feels when you don't have enough money it feels like you're going to mm. die it feels like you are under attack um and so it was kind of trying to piece that away from actually know what's what's actually happening here. And then all the shame mm -hmm. as well, because, you know, 
human beings if something's gone wrong we like to load a load of shame on the top as well it's not enough that there's there's no exactly that'll fix it you make yourself feel really you know if you really tell yourself what a dreadful person you are for having got in this situation that will definitely get you out Mm -hmm. of it no (laughs) so unresourceful by that point so um, I don't know if I'm really answering your question, Laurie. I desperately want to make you feel better about that. <laughs> you did. You did. And part of the way you did that was, I guess, of what I took away from the show is that money and value and worth aren't the same thing. Um, mm, yeah. That was a key thing I took away from it. Uh, and by leaning into my, my failure, actually, of not quite getting it... <laughs> And, and letting me into that, it was a really powerful thing. Um, so, yeah, I just thought I'd bring that up. No, I just, I'm just going to say on that, I, that is one of my raison d'etre, is to kind of, with, with my poetry, is to um, make other people feel better. Mm. <laughs> no, not just, just not on that level, but just like where I found some hope or a little opening. It's like, can I reveal this in an entertaining, inspiring, mm. heartfelt way? If I've done that, awesome. <laughs> awesome. Cool. That, that's like my year made. So. Nice. Tell us about the latest collection then, because obviously this is, this is going to be your second full collection and it's coming yeah. out in July. Yeah, tell us a bit about it. Yeah. We've, we've, we've been lucky enough to see manuscripts, so thank you for that. So. <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. Um, yeah, so it's called This Is Not Therapy. And um, incredible title. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really in love with that title, so I'm wondering if you know it should have been a dead darling. <laughs> um, but uh, it's a kind of nod and a wink. How about, do you know? I still haven't got the really succinct. Here's my elevator pitch <laughs> <laughs> thing for this book because it keeps morphing. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try and do this better. This is not therapy. I'm my sort of. Uh, I would say my question, the the thing that eats at me is, am I wasting my life? Um, yeah, you know, <laughs> that's, 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 that's just that little, me little since, chestnut there. Just that little one. <laughs> I think, no, but I do think we've all got a question or a couple of questions which keep returning to us over and over and again. And if you're a poet or writer, you keep writing a bloody show or a bloody... <laughs> book and basically the subject is the same you're just approaching it from another angle like have i got this wrong just tag me next time Um, tina (laughs) 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 and um so this is not therapy it's kind of an exploration into um how i sort of came to terms with that question really uh, when meeting certain thresholds because of course i'm middle-aged now um and so my you know, the big question of what are you doing with your life has now changed to what are you doing with the rest of your life? <laughs> and that's quite a shift mm. when you realise that more of your life is behind you than in front of you. And, um, and of course, when I was much younger, you know, I was going to be this Olympic superstar. And then I was going to be like the greatest poet <laughs> that ever roamed Edinburgh. <laughs> Not quite, but, you know, uh, I, you know, I thought there was going to be such, probably did at some point I can't remember now but some sort of like place I was going to get to and the glory of being in my 50s is it's like oh that's all bullshit isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter that doesn't matter now I can really just do the things that are fun yeah. that I love doing mm-hmm. yeah I can't I've got total permission because I have not got that rule book anymore mm-hmm. that says this is success success will bring you happiness other people will love you mm-hmm. it's like nah no 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 that that's gone 
that's gone i uh you know i'm i'm no longer the subject of sexual harassment <laughs> because i'm in my 50s <laughs> nobody's whistling at me on the street get it it's so good I I've really gone off the point. What's this book about? Not that. <laughs> um, but basically, I, 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 I've made it like a... I'm, I'm really also obsessed with the hero's journey because I used to think... <laughs> because, and you know, understand now through the lens that I looked, looked through, mm-hmm. um, I was always about like... Oh, if you follow the stages of the hero's journey, that is how you are success in life. You know, and I what, you saw every setback. story. Yeah, you have your setbacks <laughs> and then you have you... your yes and your yes. yes but, your no but and your no and. And that's how you carry yes. on. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I breached. Have I got to the midpoint of the second yeah. act yet? Yeah. You know, where yeah. I reached some nemesis, yeah. you know, that kind of. I mean, I really was kind of seeing it as some sort of solution until one day so i always thought that like you got you got the prize at the end because i'm very invested in getting prizes and um, and then one day i read that it wasn't about getting the prize at all in fact if you look at classic stories like lord of the rings you know frodo doesn't keep the ring Mm. the knights never find the holy grail or they have to destroy the holy grail at the Mm. end um indy doesn't get to keep the ark of the covenant Mm. You know, it's locked away. And um, um, Dorothy finds out that it's all a sham and she just wants to mm-hmm. go home. That's all she wanted. And uh, so it's about the healing you receive along the way. And this was like, it blew my brains. <laughs> oh, you mean it's all about the journey? Yeah, that cliche is true. <laughs> Motherfucker. <laughs> That's annoying. <laughs> uh, you know. So after I got over my initial uh, terrible disappointment that I wasn't going to end up with a big trophy, there's no way that I could plan that that was actually, you know, mm. ensure that was going to happen. I started looking at the healing aspect of it. So when I call the book, This Is Not Therapy, it's really like a nod and a wink. It's all freaking mm-hmm. therapy, man. Yeah, that's poetry. Everything. <laughs> Yeah, poetry, but also the work you do in the world, the way you have children or you don't have children. All of this is about kind of reclaiming those lost parts. That's the point of the hero's journey, that you reclaim the parts you've abandoned along the way. So that's kind of in a humorous Also, it's about tidying your sock drawer. Yeah, I was going to ask. So talk about that. There's stuff about socks and there's stuff about picking up dog poo. Yeah. Because you need some light relief. Uh, I was going to ask about your poem, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying, because... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Is it a genre now? Because yeah, I also, in my yeah. book, have The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying as a poem. And it seems yeah, to I'll be a thing now that Mary Kondo <laughs> poems Caris- are becoming a, a, a subgenre. Caris Hannah has one no as well. No shit. Yeah. Maybe just yeah. burning eye. She's very anti. She's very anti Mary. Oh man. Oh. But it is such a good ready-made kind of metaphor, isn't it? And set of metaphors <laughs> and you know, sparking joy. I feel like there's definitely yeah. an anthology to be made out of Burning Eye Birds yes. written about mm. <laughs> written about Marie Kondo. The thing I'm working like, on at the minute is all about objects oh and what we choose to keep, what we choose yeah. not to. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Bridget, if you're listening, you can have that idea for free, but we would like to be credited. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You can have that. And just, you know, <laughs> Nobody's patient to me. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Uh, Brilliant. I think before we wind up, was there anything else you wanted to plug or, or chat about? Oh, goodness me. 
I mean, I, just, I think I did a terrible job of explaining what my book's about. <laughs> <laughs> well, people will just have to buy it to find out, won't they? Uh, well, that was the point I was going to make. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, no, I, it's, it's tricky there. I aren't a lot of things to plug at the moment. I mean, I, in order to promote, I delayed this mm-hmm. book to July because it was supposed to come out in April because we thought well maybe there'll be more live gigs but you know not surprisingly uh, organisers are reticent about putting Mm. things on I have got a few Mm -hmm. but they're like pop up socially distanced one with like five people (laughs) and but what I did what I've done is um, in order to work some of the material I did some garden gigs with friends of mine and I literally said to friends look you invite a bunch of your friends don't tell them it's poetry (laughs) Just say they bring some wine, you provide the garden, I'll bring the entertainment. And we'll just try this Ooh. material out on people and see if mm-hmm. it works. And actually, it went it went really well. It was lovely. Yes. So I've just done that. I've basically turned all my friends into gig organisers. <laughs> little Tupperware party. Little promoters. It is, yeah. ex- it is exactly that. It's the poetry version of a Tupperware yes. party. I'm very, very happy about it. So no, I only have that book that I want to plug. I've got a brand new website. Ooh. Christian! Hope it's finished. <laughs> <laughs> Shouting at the bloke doing it. Um, uh, um, which, which uh, because apparently I needed to be dragged out of the noughties, the noughts, mm. in uh, my website style. Bastard. I quite like it. Um, uh, gosh. No, no, got nothing. But what I would say, no, I will say this. Um, what I'd love to do is help more people edit. Mm. So if, you are interested, and in my new, I, I send out a, a mail, um, mail shop, not mail shop, newsletter. That's mm-hmm. the word. Every month, no, I don't. I send about ten a year. Let's be, let's be honest here. That's when the they're ready, but I do when they're ready. I have, um, I put editing tips and rewriting tips in every single one. So if you're kind of interested in seeing how I do that, come and sign up to my mailing list, which you can find on the website, or you might be able to put a link in the. Show notes. Yeah. Cool. Show notes, that's right. the word. Yeah. God, losing words. <laughs> She's a professional, you know. She knows words. And what is the website again? Because I think, I, think I think we've had the address. Uh, that would be tinasetterhome.com. Excellent. Cool. So, yeah. book. When is it out again? Remind us when the book's out. Uh, July the uh-huh. 8th. And the best way to get it is? From my website, or you can order it, order it through Bookshop or through Burning mm-hmm. Eye. Great. Awesome. Don't order it through Amazon. That's what, that was what I was about to ask you. Yeah. When, yeah. Where shouldn't you buy the book? <laughs> I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of bookshop.org. Mm-hmm. I got very excited during the pandemic of like knowing that my little local bookshop mm. was getting. Yeah. 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 Was really excited. And the other thing I would put is if you don't want to buy it, borrow it from the library. Yeah. Because I will get nine pence every time <laughs> you borrow it, which is frankly what I get from Amazon. <laughs> so. Yeah. Please mm. get it from the, like whenever you want to support your friends, get it from the library. Mm. That is and a really that good point. Hope that they've um, registered for PLR because it's a lovely little surprise at the end of February. Mm. <laughs> I still get like two pound seventy two from my horsey books. I'm like, what? No. I wrote you fifteen years ago. <laughs> How is anyone borrowing this book? Like, keep it up. Keep it up. The authors yeah. licensing collecting society, the Alks. Is that yeah. is that different to what yeah. you just said? PLR? What's PLR? Okay. Yes. I haven't heard of PLR. PLR is pub. PLR is public re- lending right. And you basically go to that website, register your books, and um, every time somebody borrows a book of yours from the library, you get, I think it's seven or nine pence a borrow. Tina, thank you very much for joining us.
Thanks, Tina. Thanks. Here's a sneak preview of our book club episode coming up later this month. This month's book was The Air Year. Laurie, why did you choose this book? Um, I didn't really choose this book. I just mentioned it in the last podcast. And as soon as I mentioned that I'd read The Air Year by Caroline Bird, Hannah Hutzpah went, I want to read that. Let's make that the next book. <laughs> 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 I also, I definitely put on my Facebook, like, I'm looking to buy poetry collections. And The Air Year was mentioned at least two or three times, if not a lot mm. more, actually. So, yeah. yeah. So I read it about a month ago um, because I just wanted to. Um, it was one of the books I bought in an actual real-life bookshop, which was exciting. Um, mm. And I've wanted to read it for a while. Caroline Bird, um, for anybody who doesn't know, is a fantastic writer who has been writing for a long time. Uh, I'd say a long time, not not like super, super long time. But her first poetry collection, Looking Through Letterboxes, was published in 2002 when she was 15. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, the mark of somebody wow. who's pretty good at poetry from a young age, yes. I think it's fair to say. Um, I think, I think the sure. technical term is disgustingly talented. Disgustingly um, talented, uh, yeah. 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 Um, and I've had work, a, a workshop with her in the past, and I know other people who have had workshops with her, um and be mentored by her on their manuscript she's really heavily involved in uh the editing world as well as um the writing world um and every single person i've ever known who's had any kind of interaction with caroline bird has gone oh she's the real deal she's great um you need to check her out to hear the rest of that episode keep an eye out on our social media channels and an ear out wherever you get your podcasts Now it's time for our notice board where we spotlight 10 or so opportunities to look out for where you can perform your work or submit it for publication. Also, just stuff we think is cool. Uh, So, Hannah, what have you got for us? So, um, I spotted something which is closing very soon, but it's really fucking good. Uh, which is the Creative Futures Awards 2021. Uh, the judges include Joelle Taylor and Aki Schiltz, who uh, cr- uh, is from the literary consultancy and is also one of the founders of Lost Lit, um, which is a great online writing event. Anyway, the Creative Futures Award um, are entries for a maximum of 42 lines, submit one poem on the theme of essential and the grand prize is publication support from the likes of Joelle um, and 10 grand in cash or professional development one way or the other. Um, and they especially want to hear from people who are LGBTQIA or from black, Asian and ethnic minority backgrounds or otherwise from disadvantaged groups due to mental health, disability, health, class, etc. Um, that closes on the, oh gosh, that closes, I think, on the sixth. <laughs> um, but if you go to uh, if you if you Google Creative Futures uh, Award, that's probably the best way to find it because the URL is long. I've spotted an event which I believe Iris Colom is part of the Slant Yay, Collective. Is Iris. that right? Yeah. Um, they have got an event uh, on June thirteenth and June fourteenth online. Uh, called spontaneous combustion uh if you look for uh slant 
events spontaneously some spontaneous combustion on facebook uh feature tracks also include uh, ann wardman reese trimble maya janta subphonics and amelia zoo and also jamir early who we have a uh, friend of the show who we have featured before and insight the lgbtq plus night that i host uh free on on uh one wednesday a month uh this month it's on june 16th 7 p.m online uh uk time and it's the pride month special which will mean something special by the time this recording goes out <laughs> feature <X> tbc <laughs> But that's just a lovely, a lovely community, which has, I'm, I'm so delighted with how it has grown online. Um, and oh God, last month, um, someone who turned up online to the Insight Night, um, the Little Queer Night, which I've been asked to run and I'm very happy to steward. One of the people who turned up to read in the open mic was at the Stonewall Riots. Oh, that's very cool. Very cool. Which just kind of felt like a hug from the uh, tribal elders or something. That was really, really nice. So, yeah, like, that's... that's... I don't know. Should be good. Come along. (laughs) Cool. Laurie, what have you got for us? So, on the 10th of June, Canada Water Theatre had Words by the Water, which is an event. It used to be Canada Water Open Mic, I think, and I don't know Mm. if it's still an open mic. It seems to have kind of transitioned slightly. Um, but it's still hosted and curated by Tyrone Lewis, who we had on the very first episode of the Darling's podcast. Um, and we have been promised that it will take us on a journey and introduction to spoken word with eight talented artists who will share what the art form means to them. I don't know who any of them are going to be, but I'm excited. That is on the 10th of June and it is part of Southwark's Festival of Words. It's all online. You can find out more at canadawatertheatre.org.uk. Spread the Word currently have a series of workshops going on for 16 to 25 year olds with Young People's Laureate for London, Cecilia Knapp. They are free monthly online workshops. The next one is on experimenting with form and that is on Wednesday the 23rd of June at 6.30pm. And you can find out more about that on spreadtheword.org.uk. Also, the Society of Authors have grants going on for works in progress at the moment. The deadlines for applications for the next round of grants for Works in Progress are on the 1st of July for distribution in October. On Wednesday 16th of June we've got Poetry London Summer 2021 online readings. Celebrate the launch of Poetry London Summer 2021 online issue. Um, There will be readings so that's Wednesday 16th of June from 7 o'clock. If you search for that on Facebook uh, currently it's got um, Sarah Lasoye, uh, Elisa Wook Almino, and uh, a number of other poets on kind of consecutive days after that. So if you look for Poetry London Summer 2021, uh, you'll find them. Um, and then uh, on Monday, 7th of June 2021, there is a free poetry workshop um, from uh, Brighton Poetry. Um, please contact Job on Job J O B E at brightonpoetry.org.uk if you're interested in participating. Uh, and that is again to find out more about that, uh, search for Poetry Workshop on Facebook. In a moment, we're going to reveal our winner of our poem competition to play us out. But before we do that, is there anything you want to plug? Sure, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Laurie Eves Poet or on Twitter at Mr. Leaves. 
My book Biceps is out on Burning Eye Books or in brick red cassette form on buried vinyl. You can pick up both versions from my website lauraeves.com and stream the audio version wherever you stream audio. I am Hannah Chutzpah or Hannah.Chutzpah or Hannah underscore Chutzpah on all the platforms and Chutzpah is C-H-U-T-Z-P-A-H. Uh, I kept my stage name nice and easy to spell just to make life easier for everyone um and you can find insight poetry uh if you search for insight poetry on facebook or go find my facebook page facebook.com forward slash hannah hutzpah and or hannah hutzpah poet forward slash hannah hutzpah poet um and then you can find details of all upcoming events you can find me on twitter as rebecca k cooney uh, on my website, rebeccacooney.wordpress.com, Instagram at any name but Becky. You can find me on Facebook as Rebecca Cooney Poet. Uh, and you can find the podcast on Twitter as at Dead Darlings Pod, Facebook as Dead Darlings Podcast, and you can email us at deaddarlingspodcast at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast and help us spread the word. So, without any further ado, the winner of our Things I Didn't Do in Lockdown poem competition and the author of this month's Poem of the Month is Bridget Livermore. Heck yeah! Congratulations, Bridget. Uh, really loved your poem. And uh, we've also got honourable mentions for Jake Wildhall, Ben Hartley and Sonia Burns. Thank you so much to everyone who sent in poems. They were, it was fantastic to listen to them. Bridget, uh, we will be in touch to discuss your prize. Before we share Bridget's poem with you, I just want to say thank you to her for letting us showcase her work. Thank you to the rest of our competition entrants. Thank you to my co-hosts, Laurie and Hannah, to Texas Radio for our theme music, and of course, to you for listening. Hi, darlings. I'm Bridget Livermore, aka Your Place Ricky's Mum, and I've had a go at writing a poem about what I didn't do in lockdown. Hope you like it. In lockdown, I didn't write a poem, though the world was screaming for a narrative and assonance couldn't quite silence it. But how could I personify trauma? Waiting in the shadows for that silence? I didn't want the responsibility. No onomatopoeia could hear how the world creaked and groaned under the viral load, floating so easily on a sinister breeze. No words could mask that. Alliterative lines meant nothing because Covid couldn't care less, couldn't care less about the repetition or the weak half rhyme of anaphora and metaphor. Earth had become the virus, blank verse at its core. And what couplets could possibly mute or even quell anxiety this acute when winter days ground like a merry-go-round Without the merry I found, the simile could not compare to the actual despair of those days, so I did not write it down. Even homophones sat uneasy as nature flourished and birds sang triumphantly. To write about that would be insensitive, right? So yeah, in lockdown, I did not write a poem. Just listen to the rhythm of the beat of the days without rhyme or reason. But I thought about it a lot. And then made a pot of honey instead out of 70 dandelions. Words can be hard to find, but though I can see the irony of the pathetic fallacy, spring will always bring an abundance of sweet 
and joyful dandelions. Thank you, darlings. Good luck, everyone. Bye. Bye.